Hello, welcome to this BMJ Clinical Evidence podcast on trigeminal neuralgia. I'm Caroline Blaine, lead clinical editor on Clinical Evidence. I'm Professor Joanna Zakrzewska, known as Zak for short, and I'm a professor and lead of facial pain unit at the Eastman Dental Hospital, part of University College London Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And my name is Mark Linsky. I'm a professor of neurological surgery at the University of California, Irvine, uh, and uh, subspecialize in trigeminal neuralgia with surgical treatments. Thank you, Joanna and Mark, so much for joining us today. Um, Perhaps we could start, Joanna, with just an introduction to what is trigeminal neuralgia. Well, trigeminal neuralgia is considered to be a neuropathic pain. It's a very rare condition that causes excruciating, intermittent, short-lasting pain over one side of the face in the distribution of the trigeminal nerve, typically produced by light-touch provocation. And it is supposedly an easy diagnosis to make. uh, But in fact, as you get into the history more, there can be a lot of other reasons for this type of pain. The pain initially is sudden and very memorable onset. So this uh, pain condition can often mimic things like toothache, which is why so many of the patients can first arrive at the dentist and they and the dentist can feel quite convinced that it is a dental type of pain. But as no dental course is found, so people have to think a little bit uh, more widely as to what it might be. Very often patients have memorable onsets and I have very many of my patients who even 20 years on can remember that very first attack, what they were doing at the time of the attack. And then gradually the attacks get more severe and more frequent. Initially, there are periods of pain remission uh, and the pain disappears and the patient and the clinician thinks that everything's fine and it's gone, but it tends to come back. What we don't know is how long the remission periods are going to be and how long the relapses are going to be. And in some patients, the relapses are pretty quick and long and lead need surgery very quickly, whereas others seem to progress on an intermittent scale and then don't need surgery quite as quickly and can be managed medically. And it's very difficult to say into which group a patient will belong. So the initial treatment is anticonvulsant drugs and the drug of choice first line is carbamazepine. We've got most evidence for those, although the randomized controlled trials are old uh, and not up to the quality that we would expect uh, these days, but it has been shown to be highly effective. Over 70% of patients will have complete actual pain relief initially when using it. But gradually, the pain relief is not as good and they will still complain of the odd twinge of pain, but the that is much better than anything they had before. Unfortunately, side effects are very common. When I did a survey among patients, every patient said they got side effects from the drugs up to a mean of three side effects, particularly in the cognitive domain, not being able to find words, memory loss, tiredness, uh, sleepiness. Once we've used carbamazepine and we get side effects or the carbamazepine interacts with drugs that they're taking for other conditions and many of these patients are middle-aged and therefore the drugs can impact on their 
other drugs, then the next drug of choice for which we have limited evidence is oxcarbazepine. There were randomized controlled trials uh, done both with oxcarbazepine on its own and in comparison with carbamazepine, but unfortunately they were never published in full. So all we have as evidence is a quite detailed poster that was presented at a neurological conference. Then the next drugs for which we have some slight evidence is lamotrigin, really done as an add-on. It's only one randomized control trial where it was added on to carbamazepine uh, or phenytoin. And there is some small amount of evidence for the use of baclofen. As a clinician dealing with some of these patients who also have multiple sclerosis, I find baclofen most useful in that group of patients as they may well be already taking the baclofen and therefore it's useful to be able to just up that dose rather than give them another drug. But often I find I have to mix it together with carbamazepine. And then, of course, we have the newer drugs uh, that are being used, anticonvulsant drugs, but we don't have high-quality evidence. There's a small trial of its use with gabapentin, but in a, a cohort of patients that was relatively new to the condition, and it was combined with rapivacaine local injections into the trigger points. Pregabalin hasn't had a randomized control trials, only a long-term cohort study, which looks promising. Other drugs have also been used in those types of circumstances, but again, the evidence is quite low. It's quite difficult to carry out uh, trials in this condition because of the rarity of the condition, the difficulty of using placebo controls because of the severity of the disease. An active control, which would be carbamazepine, would be difficult because this drug interacts with so many drugs and takes a long time to wash out, a minimum of three days. So it's very difficult to put patients through a washout period. And then the problem is that the drug itself, the condition itself, goes into pain remission. And so at the end of trials, really, one has to ascertain whether the pain is still present. So design of studies is also very difficult in this condition. So once patients get into problems with the drugs, either lack of to uh, efficacy or tolerability, then we have to start to think about surgery. And that's where I'm going to hand over to Mark to tell us a little bit about the indications he has for surgery and some of the surgical techniques that we can use. One of the nice differentiation features when you're trying to work your differential diagnosis is trigeminal neuralgia pain tends to be an arresting pain as opposed to other types of facial pain. During the actual episode, whatever the patient was doing, they cannot continue. They have to stop. They literally will freeze, in, whether they're in the middle of talking, whether they're in the middle of chewing, it doesn't matter. And that's, that's a nice uh, differential point, along with the fact that early in the syndrome, between episodes, they tend to be pain-free. A little bit about the causes, because I think that has a very important um, impact on choices of therapy. Less than 5% of unilateral trigeminal neuralgia uh, is caused by a definable pathology on MRI, such as multiple sclerosis, 
lacunar uh, infarction or small stroke, uh, cerebral pontine angle mass lesion, things like that, 95% of patients are likely caused by vascular compression of the cranial nerve root. But that's different for the rare version, which is bilateral trigeminalgia, where up to 50% of patients with bilateral trigeminalgia will at least eventually, over time, manifest as having multiple sclerosis. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Surgical interventions are extremely important and I think are undergoing a reevaluation for their role. It's often been considered as a general maxim that one maximizes medical therapies first before considering surgery. Um, but we're starting to rethink this. Uh, and the, the reason we're starting to rethink this is that while the evidence for medical therapy with, with pharmacologic intervention for trigeminalgia is much stronger than for surgical intervention, the effect magnitude for surgery is much stronger than medical. When we evaluate medicines and randomized clinical trials for trigeminalgia, the endpoint that's used is 50% improvement in baseline pain syndrome. For surgical success, the usual gold standard for assessment is being pain-free, completely pain-free, usually off of all medicines. Now, there are two general categories of surgical intervention for trigeminalgia. The first, which has the best track record for durability and for strength of effect, is microvascular decompression, where a patient actually goes to sleep, the neurosurgeon makes a small incision and goes through a small hole in the back of the head behind the, the ear, and then enters the crawl space between the brain and the skull and decompresses the trigeminal nerve from the blood vessels that are causing the problem. The other category of treatment, we generally called palliative destructive procedures, and there are four of them that have stood the test of time. We call them palliative because you're treating the symptom, the symptom of pain rather than the, the cause itself, and destructive because what they all have in common is the goal is to partially damage the nerve on purpose. Damaging the nerve more severely would have important bad ramifications in terms of deafferentation, loss of sensation, and developing of other pain syndromes related to deafferentation, which can even be worse than trigeminalgia, the worst form being anesthesia dolorosa. Three of the palliative destructive procedures involve a needle going up through the cheek while the patient is briefly um, sedated, where the needle ends up through foramen ovale, around the ganglion or the nerve root of the trigeminal nerve. In one, the end of the needle has an electrode on it, and you hook that electrode up to a electricity uh, generator, and you damage the nerve by heating it with electricity, and that's called a radiofrequency lesion, or RFL. In the second, the end of the needle ends up in the pool of fluid surrounding the ganglion of the nerve, and you inject a very viscous alcohol so that it doesn't disperse in the CSF within the, the skull, uh, and you damage the nerve chemically. And that's the alcohol used is glycerol, and that's called a glycerol rhizotomy or glycerol rhizolysis. In the third, the end of the needle has a balloon catheter on it, and you inflate the balloon in the tunnel. Uh, in the skull with the nerve, and you damage the nerve mechanically by essentially crushing it against the wall. Uh, each of these three percutaneous, meaning that we use a needle through the skin procedures, are painful to perform, so the patient does have to be pulse uh, sedated uh, and can have reflex effects on the heart, so you need to be worried about patients uh, who have cardiac conditions, but their effect is immediate. The pain relief that the patient feels is right away. 
so that 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 can be used in cases of extremists of the patient. The fourth palliative destructive procedure is placing a very high focused dose of radiation on the trigeminal nerve root, and that's called stereotactic radiosurgery. Now, there are different machines that can do it, uh, and often they will be known by the machines that are used. The one that's the gold standard that has been used the most and the most tested is gamma knife stereotactic radiosurgery, and some people will simply refer to it as gamma knife. Um, In general, palliative destructive procedures, since they don't address the cause, have a tendency to recur. In a meta-analysis of a surgical series of these procedures, the median time to recurrence for palliative destructive procedure for 50% of patients is approximately three to five years. Now, it's important to remember that when we're treating our patients, we're treating them over the time horizon of their median life expectancy. I tend to use palliative destructive procedures in patients who have about 10 years on average to live. And in the U.S., using actuarial uh, table and life table analysis, you don't get to that age until age 80. Now, we also use it for patients who have those other 5% of causes uh, where we don't suspect vascular compression as the cause. And we also use it for patients who uh, are, are infirm or poor risks for general anesthesia, patients with cancer, patients on blood thinners, things like that. But generally, a microvascular decompression for a young, healthy patient who can safely undergo general anesthesia in experienced hands uh, is the procedure of choice surgically for trigeminal neuralgia. Its major risk is about a 5% or less risk of hearing loss, um, but it also can have any of the other risks uh, of an open surgical procedure, although these are quite low at the 1% to 2% rate in experienced hands. When I said earlier that we're starting to rethink the role of surgery, it's particularly true, I think, in patients who are young, patients who have a lifetime ahead of them of being on these medicines, and patients where a palliative destructive procedure with a median um, control time of only three to five years becomes problematic. Because each time you repeat a palliative destructive procedure, you carry a slightly lower chance of a success rate and you're adding damage on top of damage. So you're increasing the chance of creating numbness, which as I mentioned earlier, can lead to other forms of neuropathic pain, um, in particular deafferentation pain, which can be even more difficult uh, to treat. So this can become complex over time, but microvascular decompression right now is our main workhorse uh, from the surgical side. There are no randomized clinical trials comparing Um, different surgical procedures to one another. There are randomized clinical trials within a given procedure for different techniques, which in general are not very informative to us. There are two prospective cohort patient trials, observational studies, that compare microvascular decompression uh, against gamma knife stereotactic radiosurgery. And what they show is that while they are reasonably good, both of them can have good results early on, uh, with one showing 100% effect at one year for MBD versus 78% for gamma knife, and the other uh, showing um, 84% and 66%. By five years, they are very disparate. For for microvascular decompression in the one, 77% pain-free rate versus 45% for gamma knife, in the other, 77% for uh, microvascular decompression and 56% uh, for gamma knife at four years. So I think the evidence, while not randomized clinical trial, not 
class one evidence is fairly strong in the prospective cohort um, category, what we would call class two evidence uh, for the primacy of MVD over palliative destructive procedure. I think one of the things also that needs to be taken into account is the quality of life of these patients. And that, again, is another distinguishing factor from other types uh, of pain, as Mark pointed out. Uh, the immediacy of the severity of the pain, but also uh, the quality of life. These patients have got to stop working, particularly if they do jobs that involve speaking uh, and facing the public. They become very lonely because they do not have have access to or don't want to go out for meals because that is uh, the thing that triggers off their pain. So they become socially isolated um, and sit there just deliberating in a way about their pain. And yet they don't have other types of pain. These are not like the usual chronic pain patients. This often is the only pain that they have. And it's in this isolation that they need some support. And I find that a patient support group, which we have in various parts of uh, the world, uh, we have one in the UK, a very large one that was started in the US, uh, also Australia, the Danes have started one, help patients to meet other patients with this rare condition. It enables them to become experts. Uh, they will have access, hopefully through these organizations, to the high quality evidence, because unfortunately, there's a lot of um, material out there on the internet that's quite terrifying for patients. And one of the patients I've just had told me about how terrified she was about what she saw written about the prognosis of this condition. Uh, she came out with all her various vitamin pills do I need to take these as well to improve it because somebody said this would help and I think again by providing patients with expert knowledge and the fact that they can meet what they call a buddy that is another patient who knows exactly what they've been through is extremely helpful and having done um, satisfaction surveys at conferences in the US, UK and Australia, we found that these conferences where healthcare professionals come and talk to patients uh, have been extremely helpful in reducing the loneliness and giving them coping strategies. Because I think the very important factor is that patients have a strategy for how they're going to cope with their next uh, pain attack. So for this reason, we like to have all our patients, once they've had their MRIs, come to a joint neurosurgical clinic where they meet both the neurosurgeons and the physicians. And between us, we can have this discussion about the treatment options, plan A, plan B. Uh, and that, I think, acts as a great deal of reassurance and reduces the fear of this terribly rare but excruciatingly painful condition. I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, I would also emphasize that it's really important not just to manage these patients multidisciplinarily, but to have the educational sit down and discussion with a surgeon early on. And the reason I say that is not to promote surgery, but to point out that it's almost unfair to a patient to send them to talk to a surgeon when they're in extremis, when they're, they've failed their medical therapy and they're in excruciating pain and they will agree to anything. And when their medications are at the highest level so that they're the most cognitively impaired for an informed consent. 
I think it's almost like dealing with a will or an estate. You have to have a contingency plan for when you get to that point that's been well worked out and advanced in the cool of the moment when you can consider all options uh, very carefully. And I think working in a multidisciplinary uh, type of clinical setting really augments uh, that, that opportunity. The MR is extremely important for ruling out those other 5% of causes for unilateral patients. But there's a general tendency, at least in the U.S., to think that you can rule in or rule out vascular compression with an MRI scan. And quite frankly, nothing is further from the truth. MR is not sensitive enough for this or specific enough, and it is often interpreted by people who don't understand the issue. Vascular contact with the cranial nerve 5 is normal. If the patient has the syndrome, they have the vascular compression, and it's and, they, and it, as long as they don't have that other five percent causes, and it's up to the surgeon to, to to find that at surgery. And lastly, we didn't mention pediatrics, which, while even rarer than adult, only one percent of trigeminalgia is pediatric, is an important subset because during development and during learning and during during socialization, the cognitive effects of the medications are particularly severe. All of the issues that Joanna brought out are magnified in that setting. And that's a particularly important one to consider uh, surgery early. And I was very impressed with Joanna's um, survey of patients uh, in the UK after surgery, just querying them as to what they thought about the timing of their management and, and when they had their surgery. And if I recall correctly, Joanna, more than 70% of patients in your survey stated that in retrospect, they had waited far too long before considering a surgical option. That's absolutely correct. And I think that, again, highlights the importance of, as we call it, phenotyping the patients very carefully, because in the right hands with the right diagnosis, even as a physician, I am convinced about the need for a surgical option. But I think what is happening sometimes is that care hasn't been taken in making the diagnosis. And although we've talked about it as being relatively simple, there are a lot of variations to it. And we're recognizing that more and more. Um, and there are rare conditions like SUNA, short unilateral neuralgiform pain with autonomic symptoms of uh, tearing, redness of the eye, running nose, swelling of the face, which could be the same syndrome or a different one. But again, careful phenotyping is very important. And for that reason, I think patients, again, as we've said, need to go through a multidisciplinary uh, system so that people can retake the history because history can change. Patients' memory of it can change. And that's why the spouses or other halves who are with them can often help to recall parts of the history that are very important. So I think history taking and taking a very careful phenotype and looking at the quality of life and measuring that. I know our measures aren't brilliant, but we can use simple measures like the brief pain uh, inventory, which has been particularly adapted for use in facial pain. Looking at anxiety and depression and quality of life can give us the measures which give us an indication of how severely these patients are suffering and therefore why they might need surgical management. 
with all the drugs that are available currently, anticonvulsants, there is a tendency potentially for neurologists to try and work their way through all the anticonvulsants. And I think, again, I concur with Mark that these patients need to be seen early on in a joint neurosurgical clinic. They don't need to make a decision about having surgery at that meeting, but at least they've heard the options. And so very much it's a multidisciplinary uh, approach. We're also using psychologists to help us with these patients. So it's a team effort uh, to help. Yeah, the, the other uh, point I think that needs to be emphasized is if you're um, considering a microvascular decompression as a surgical option, this is an extremely subspecialized procedure. It is not a common one. In the United States, the average neurosurgeon uh, serves about a population of about 35,000 um, people. And given the incidence of about six per 100,000 per year of trigeminal neuralgia and the percentage that come to surgical therapy, that means that the average board-certified neurosurgeon in the United States is only going to see two of these patients every three years. And that is not enough to be able to become expert and keep your results as high as possible and your complication rates as low as possible. In choosing a surgeon, if you're going to consider an MBD, I would strongly suggest that you do your homework and that you choose someone who ideally has been trained by an expert in the procedure. You choose somebody who is over their learning curve. They've done enough to become expert themselves. And in my opinion, for this procedure, that's about 50 cases under their belt. And most importantly, are doing a regular, consistent volume of cases annually in order to keep their skills set up and their complication rates low. And this is arguable, but most would agree that somewhere between a minimum of six and 12 cases per year is ideal for keeping that uh, in place. You can reduce the hearing loss risk by doing intraoperative monitoring of the hearing nerve with auditory brainstem evoke response. And generally, uh, the best results are achieved in centers where they have an intact multidisciplinary surgical team that includes neurology, neuromonitoring, neuroanesthesia, um, uh, neuro-OR technicians, and neuro-ICU nurses, all experienced in working on these cases. And perhaps I'll just end about talking about research as um, there is an increased interest in doing some research into this condition and particularly helpful in this have been the patients themselves in the US who've been raising money to do further research in basic science. They've been uh, commissioning uh, research in basic science, stem cell analysis, myelin, and we've also got a new drug that we're using, which looks hopeful and there's also research into the genetics of the study. So there are increasing number of research projects in motion to try and look at whether we can find the cause of the disease and then also at further management using better quality evidence because what we do need is high quality evidence uh, to try and help in management of this rare condition. John and Mark, thank you so much for an informative um, discussion about the evidence um, for trigeminal neuralgia and setting that into a useful clinical context for people. That's very much appreciated, and I thank you both for joining us today. For the full version of the systematic overview, please see www.clinicalevidence.bmj.com. And for any queries or questions, please email ceeditor at bmj.com. Thank you for listening.